the day I died. Monday of Holy Week, 1889. Palm Sunday night, around 11.45, Brother James lights the lantern, wakes up Father Conrardi, the priest who's come to take my place here at the leper settlement, and together they go to the church next door. Soon I hear them coming back, Brother James ringing the little altar bell as he walks ahead of Father Conradi in the dark. Up they come to my room. Brother James holds the napkin under my chin. Father Conradi says in a sleepy voice, the body and blood of Christ and I receive my last communion. Then Father Conradi asks if he can have my cassock, threadbare and full of leprosy. What would he do with it? Better I be buried in it. Next thing I know, my roosters are growing. It's getting light. It's hard to breathe, so Brother James helps me to sit up. And while he's holding me, I breathe for the last time. As Brother James bends over to close my eyes, the farewell chant begins outside my door and spreads throughout the settlement till every leper knows that Camiano's spirit has departed. A year ago tonight, Monday of Holy Week, 2019, I gathered with some friends in a small chapel at Holy Trinity Church, upstairs from where we have our theater, and I did a reading of Damien. Thirty years before, in Holy Week of 1989, I performed Father Damien for the first time one century after his death in Holy Week 1889. It was remarkable to see these times fold in on each other, connect up. When I stood on the stage a hundred years after Damien's death and thought about his calling, the way that God had made him a man who could go to Hawaii, and move in with the lepers and live with them and make their lives better until he himself died of leprosy. I thought of that calling, and I thought of my calling, which is not so grandiose, but I do have a deep sense that this is what I'm made to do, tell stories on stages, stories like Father Damien's story, which might not get told on a lot of other stages. And I've got to say, Father Damien's been much on my mind these last weeks. The people from his parish were taken by armed guards and 
dumped on a little inhospitable spit of land on Molokai. Isolated, so nobody else would catch their disease. And Father Damien went in, and he brought medicine, and he shared his pipe with them, and he lived among them, knowing that he could contract their disease. And I think of the people who are doing that right now. My friend's daughter, seven months pregnant, who works as a healthcare professional in New York City. The folks at the grocery store who handle everybody's groceries and work an eight-hour shift exposed to whoever happens to come in to buy the food that they need. It's a more common kind of sainthood, I suppose. But it moves me very deeply. Okay, that's a pretty somber start to today's pod. Uh, Hopefully that's all right. I mean, an artist's job is to speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. Some guy wrote that. In fact, they say that that guy wrote his greatest work during the plague of 1606. What, Shakespeare wrote Love's Labor's Lost in 1606? I had no idea he wrote that so late in his career. What, with that great cricket-playing scene and everything? No, they say that during his quarantine, Bill Shakespeare wrote King Lear. Maybe you heard of it. So yes, Virginia, there is silver lining. At least sometimes. For some people. But still, like I always say, every silver lining has a cloud. And you know, they've closed the theaters before. Even when they didn't know about germs and stuff like that yet, they knew theaters were dangerous places, and they shut us down. We're often the first to go. Canaries in the pandemic coal mine. (laughs) Maybe this podcast is my leer, or maybe it's just my love's labor's lost. Words, baby. Words. Gotta love the words.
still a flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. What age is best, which is the first, when youth and blood are warmer? But being spent the worst and worst times still succeed the former. Then be not coy, but use your time, and while ye may go merry, for having lost but once your prime, you may forever tarry. Because a woman's fair Or make pale my cheeks with care Cause another's rosy are Be she fairer than the day Or the flowery meads in May If she be not so to me What care I how fair she be Great or good or kind or fair I will ne'er the more despair If she love me this believe I will die ere she shall grieve If she slight me when I woo I can scorn and let her go For if she be not for me What care I for whom she be? What care I? composition by Spencer Capier. I think he's kind of turned out to be our artist in residence here at the Soul Food Podcast. That's off his record, Plays Well with Others. And he does, doesn't he? You know what's peculiar? 
I was planning to talk about Shakespeare and King Lear and the plagues tonight. Uh, even before I got word of another theater closure. Here's a familiar voice. These are difficult and unprecedented times. It has now become clear that if we stage a festival this summer, we cannot ensure that standard of safety and well-being for all. And so we've made the deeply painful decision to cancel our 31st season. We're grieving for it, but we are sure that it's the right thing to do. We look forward to that time, a year from now, when I will stand in this spot and behind me you will see our beautiful barred tents rising again. And soon after I heard that message, I opened my email and read a letter from another friend whose summer festival takes place just a couple beaches down from Bard. Dear friends, theater isn't very good with social distancing. Our specialty, in fact, is the opposite, social inclusion. In normal times, the heart of our job is bringing a group of strangers together, rubbing elbows and breathing the same air, and telling them stories that make them feel less alone, less an isolated individual, and more part of a larger community. These, alas, are not normal times. And sadly, Ensemble Theatre Company must cancel our 2020 Summer Festival. Tarek Leslie, Artistic Director. All of this is very sad news. Inevitable, but very sad. It's been going around. I will say that I got some good news today. On a much smaller scale and really only a big deal for me personally, but I got an email from somebody. Back in 1978, just before I left Alberta, in a dusty record bin somewhere in Edmonton, I found a record called Hustlin' and Bustlin', the artists, the original sloth band. With a name like that, how could I possibly resist? I bought the record, I fell in love, I moved to Vancouver, I got a couple more records by that same musical ensemble, and I still play them to this day. And today I heard from Ken Whiteley, who said, yeah, sure, go ahead, play our music on your podcast. Here we go. You know you don't need no ticket Just let the whole egg go for me And get on board Get on board, little Whoa, children Oh, get on board Get on board, little children Oh, get on board Get on board, Oh, 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 there's room for many more Oh, get on board Get on board, little children Get on board Get on board, little children Oh, get on board Get on board, little children Oh, there's room for many more Oh, well, the gospel train is full Oh, get all your business right you better get your house in order. Uh, Set the train, man. 
Doesn't that just cheer a person up? We really, really, really need art, don't we? In these times, all times, it restoreth the soul, a banquet in the face of our enemies. Sorry for all the bad news tonight, but as we mentioned at the start there tonight, it's that sort of week, Holy Week, Passion Week. The last days leading up to the darkest day of the year, this Friday, when the light of the world was blacked out. Except not quite. There are things the darkness can never overcome. I'm watching Netflix this week, a series called Messiah. A story like that story that they call the greatest one ever told, but not quite. Off kilter. It starts in modern Syria, this Jesus, Isa, is Muslim, I think. I'm not sure about everything he says. I'm on the edge about what he'll come out with, what he'll do next. I'm uneasy, the way I was with the last temptation of Christ. Off balance, the way I would have been with, well, with the Messiah. Not a bad way to spend Holy Week. If you've finished The Tiger King, you might want to check it out. Another friend tells me that Mary Magdalene is good over on Amazon Prime. I see they've also got the Aretha Franklin gospel concert, too, that, that came out last year. Amazing Grace. The Two Popes is quite beautiful. It's touching, funny, brilliantly acted. That's on Netflix. It's way more entertaining than you'd ever expect, and not just because it's got the World Cup in it. But maybe my best tip, if you're up for a movie with some edge willing to spend what you would at a theater, 12 bucks for a film you're never going to see on Netflix that you really shouldn't miss, and you'll help keep the Vancouver International Film Festival intact. Stream Corpus Christi. Don't say I didn't warn you. It's violent and intense, but I think profound, and profoundly right for this particular week of the year. Corpus Christi. Stream it at vif.org. Before we turn back to Shakespeare, I need to mention how Pacific Theater will be marking the Easter weekend. Every Christmas, we put together something called Christmas Presents, an idiosyncratic combination of great music and good writing to commemorate the season. So with nothing else to do this Easter, I figured I'd pull together a little Easter presents. It would be better live, but 
well, you know. So we'll do what we can. It'll be the next Soul Food Podcast. Meet us back here on Good Friday or, or maybe even on the night before, Maundy Thursday, and we'll spend some time Eastering together, virtually together. But back to King Lear. Let me read you a passage from one of my favorite novels, Open Heart, by Frederick Beekner. It's a few pages long, but worth it. So settle in for a story. A story set in a high school English class. The Lear class had gone better than usual. It was the third act that was up for grabs that day. Lear on the heath with Kent and the fool. The storm coming up. And nothing could have seemed more remote from our condition. Yet there was a moment or two when, for some reason, it worked. Came alive. No thanks to me. There they all sat, drowsy and full of lunch. There was a gym class going on outside. You could hear somebody calling out calisthenics. One and two and one and two. There was a bumblebee softly bumping his way back and forth across the ceiling. But nobody was paying much attention to him. I sat on the windowsill in my shirt sleeves, asking some boring questions somebody had written in the margin of my teaching copy, and wondering idly who had written them and when, and not much caring whether anyone tried to answer them or not. "'What evidence do you find in Act Three for a significant change in Lear's character?' was one of the questions. And a fat boy named William Urquhart surprised me by answering it. He was sitting all bent over with his head in his arms on the desk, and I'd thought he was asleep. His voice came out muffled by his arm. He said, He's gotten kinder. I said, What makes you think so? The second question coming so quick on the heels of the one he'd just answered was more than William Urquhart had bargained for, and he shifted his head to the other arm without saying anything. You could see where his cheek had gotten all moist and red where he'd been lying on it, and there was the imprint of wrinkles from his sleeve. The ball was picked up by a boy named Greg Dixon. He was the pimpliest member of the class and the least popular. He said, well, when it starts to rain, he thinks about the fool keeping dry, too. He says it right here someplace. Come on, my boy. How dost, my boy? Here it is, he says. Poor fool and knave, I have one part in my heart that's sorry yet for thee. He's getting kinder to people, just like Urquhart said. Also, he says a prayer for people. It was Laura Fleischman who had spoken up this time. She always sat in the back row next to a good-looking basketball player named Carl West, who knew he could have any girl in the class, but for the time being anyway had settled for her. Usually she didn't speak at all, or spoke with a kind of startled breathiness as if she was surprised herself that anything beside Carl West could get a rise out of her. Somebody hoarse laughed, not so much at what she'd said, I thought, as at the fact that it was she who'd said it. 
Carl West sat there beside her with his stocking feet stretched out as far as they would go and his head lolling back as if to watch the bee on the ceiling. Nobody says a prayer in my book, Greg Dixon said. Line 35, Laura Fleshman said. That's no prayer, Greg Dixon said. That's not like any prayer I ever heard of. doesn't even say God in it. I said, go ahead and read it out loud, will you, Laura? Carl West sat humped over sideways now as far from Laura Fleischman as he could get without standing up and changing his seat. He was staring down at the wooden writing arm, tracing some scar on it over and over again with one finger. In a small, half-apologetic voice, with the calisthenic count going on in the background, she read, Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Every person has one particular time in his life when he's more beautiful than he is ever going to be again. For some it is at seven, for others at seventeen or seventy. And as Laura Fleischman read out loud from Shakespeare, I remember thinking that for her it was probably just then. Her long hair dividing over her bare shoulders her lashes dark against her cheeks as she looked down at the page. She could go nowhere from this moment except away from it. She still had a long way to go before she left it for good, but I felt like Father Hopkins anyway as I watched her. How to keep back beauty, keep it beauty, beauty, beauty from vanishing away. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, she read, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. And two and one and two, the voice floated in through the open windows. Carl West had one hand up to his eyes as if to shield them from the sun, the other cupped at his crotch. The bee drifted heavily down from the ceiling and hit the blackboard with a little thud then crawled drunkenly along the chalk tray. I said, Who are these poor naked wretches he's praying for, if she's right that he's praying? Greg Dixon said, We are. He said it to be funny. They were the poor naked wretches to have to sit there and listen to Laura Fleischman read blank verse when they could be off somewhere having fun or whatever Greg Dixon thought of as fun. But nobody laughed. Maybe I just ascribed my own thoughts to them, but it seemed to me that for a moment or two in that sleepy classroom, they all felt some unintended truth in Greg Dixon's words. Laura Fleischman, in the fullness of her time. William Urquhart, in his fatness, Greg Dixon with his pimples, Carl West handsome and bored with the knowledge that he could have any girl in that room. They were the poor naked wretches 
and at least for the moment, they knew they were. All of us. The Pitiless Storm. Yo-Yo Ma, Songs of Comfort, Dvorak's tune, Going Home. That's a gift from Yo-Yo Ma to all of us. He writes, In these days of anxiety, I wanted to find a way to continue to share some of the music that gives me comfort. Thanks for that, Mr. Ma. A few years back, Simon Webb played the title role in the Honest Fishmonger's production of Lear, and that's why I invited them to do Measure for Measure on our stage the next season. Simon was Angelo. We became friends a couple years later, working together on my play Tolkien. I asked him to read us something that comes from late in that story when Lear has lost his kingdom and his daughters and He's alone in a prison cell with one of his daughters, Cordelia, who loves him. Far removed at last from the things that seemed so important a short time before. Battles and the machinations of court. Who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out. And I wonder whether Shakespeare really did write this during a plague year with his theater shut down. And in the middle of all that grief and loss and imposed solitude. Come, let's await a prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live 
and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news and we'll talk with them too who loses and who wins who's in who's out and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were god's spies <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>